Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. Uh, before we start, remember there is a website associated with this particular podcast at wealthformula.com. Lots of resources and lists for you to sign up there and get involved with our community. Today's show is going to be a little bit different. We're not going to really talk about money, but we are going to talk about probably the most significant element of wealth, which is really being uh, healthy and having a long health, health span, that is. Because after all, what is all this wealth stuff for anyway? I've spent you know the last 15 years you know after residency training trying to accumulate wealth. And it wasn't until about two years ago that I actually decided to start spending it. Why? Well, there were some major changes in my life, and it made me think about mortality. Now, of course, those were not, uh, they weren't health scares or anything. It's just things in your life that happen, in my case, you know, divorce and that kind of thing, uh, that all of a sudden, you know, kicks you in the butt and says, whoa, you know, what's going on? Where are you? How old are you? And where are you in life? Right? So anyway, but bottom line is, you know, everyone has to die someday, right? So anyway, I started thinking about that kind of stuff. And before this realization, I was doing what pretty much all responsible professionals do. I was working hard and I wouldn't spend much money on myself. In fact, you know, up until, gosh, right, you know, before the pandemic, um, I was still driving it like my 2009 Prius or no, I'm sorry, it's a 2007 Prius. Uh and that Prius, uh, you know, was was basically my daily driver, and I just didn't really care. And I was like, well, you know, whatever. I'll I'll buy something nice someday, right? And, and so that's kind of like the way I was about myself. You know, I just didn't really spend anything on myself. It was all about creating wealth and not really spending any of it. And in hindsight. I don't really understand what I was waiting for. I mean, I probably, in fact, should have been spending more money on myself in my 20s and 30s and had some more fun because I, like many surgical residents and doctors and stuff like that, sacrificed a significant portion of our youth, you know, in our 20s and 30s, uh, early 30s even, uh, to, to you know, this this training and, you know, didn't really get to sort of have some of the fun that I think others do in their 20s. Of course, I can't change that now, and I'm aware of that, but what I can do is to start enjoying life uh, as soon as possible, which is now, and try to figure out how to stay feeling young and living as long as possible feeling young uh, so that I can spend a lot of time making up for lost time. 
Uh, the good news for us is that there is actually a tremendous amount of science and technology growth in the field of longevity, and it's developing fast. And we're talking about not only living longer, but living like healthier longer, right? So, you know, like being 100 years old would be like being 70, you know, 100 is the new 70. That's that's kind of the idea. Um, you know, we know so much more than our parents did on what to eat, how often to eat, how to optimize exercise, and what supplements and prescription drugs appear to lengthen not only lifespan, but again, more importantly, health span. There's so much information out there that is also, I have to tell you, to be very careful. Just think about all the money that, you know, selling people a fountain of youth can make. So, it's ripe for fraud, right? There's a lot of people who are going to try to rip you off. So you got to be careful of that. Now, that being said, as a physician, um, and of course I'm not practicing, but I still have a medical degree and surgical training and all that mumbo jumbo. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what's real and what's not in this space. I find it extremely fascinating. Some of my friends um, and investors in our own community have pivoted their careers to the practice of longevity medicine, which I think is phenomenal. I think they are going exactly where the puck uh, is going. And those are the people who know a lot more than me in this field, even though um, you know I, I try to keep on, on it myself as well. And one of these guys is Dr. Rob Hamilton. Now, Rob spoke at our last Wealth Formula event. And I got to tell you, he seriously blew the audience away with his presentation. He is an encyclopedia of knowledge in the field of longevity and my and my guest on Wealth Formula podcast this week. So Rob is, you know, we're having one of our own uh, interviewed this week. Now, if this stuff is new for you, I strongly urge you to start paying attention, looking what's out there and try to follow, follow along. After all, what's the point of accumulating this wealth if you don't have a long, healthy life to enjoy it, right? So whether you are already on that journey or are interested in learning more, you will want to listen to this podcast. I'm biased because of my interest, but I think you might find this to be one of the most useful podcasts, from Wealth Formula at least, that you've ever listened to in your life. With that being said, we will come back with Rob Hamilton right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now. 
at ReliantFun4.com. Again, that's ReliantFun4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast, he's one of us. He is Dr. Rob Hamilton, a, uh, a guy who is part of our Wealth Formula community. He is a physician uh, with a medical degree from the University of Colorado. He's uh, board certified in emergency medicine. But more importantly, in my view, He's one of the smartest guys I know uh, when it comes to this whole longevity medicine um, movement. And and for those of you who came to our last event, uh, you were probably completely blown away by his talk um, as he gave this you know tremendous overview of longevity and the literature. And basically, it was um, stuff that I kind of find more interesting than even money right now. So... Rob, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Buck. Very happy to be here. Yeah. So, first of all, let's let's talk a little bit about what what got you interested in, you know, cuz you were practicing emergency medicine, you were doing this kind of thing. How'd you get into, you know, this wellness and and longevity space um and and you know, and what uh what continues to interest you about that? Well, I'm, you know, mortality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> One of the things that, that happens in emergency medicine is, you know, we see the worst of the worst, right? Yeah. And, one one corollary to that is most of the worst of the things you see are more or less preventable or at least delayable, right? right. You see a lot of heart attacks and strokes and things like that, and you you realize after a period of time that um, chronic disease is killing all of us one way or the other. Um, and the chronic diseases of kind of modern civilization, things like hypertension and, uh, you know, dyslipidemia or high lipid strokes, uh, heart disease as the end result. Um, I mean, not all of what we do in the ER is gunshots and trauma. A lot of it is just dealing with the the ravages of daily life. So I, um, you know, I turned 40 that (laughs) that's when you're, you know, the night shifts get longer and harder and your mortality starts to creep up on you. I started noticing some abnormalities in my own personal lab work that hadn't been there before. And I said, wow, what's going on? Why is my <laughs> CRP so high? And uh, that sent, sort of sent me down some some rabbit holes into, you know, looking online and reading and learning things that I never learned in medical school, things about diet and exercise and nutrition and sunlight and circadian biology. And then sadly, my, uh, you know, a number of things converged. Um, my father got cancer and I started to realize, gosh, we're all mortal here. And I looked at the struggles he went through. And then some of my colleagues were starting to get into this anti-aging and, um, regenerative medicine field. Yeah. So I went and sought some formal education. Yeah. And that, that's great. Um, so, you know, let me, let me just jump right into it. Cause one of the you know, yeah. and your talk was very popular and I was, okay. and again, I, I'm not just trying to pull your chain here. I just, I was really impressed like with, you know, your, your presentation, your sort of body of knowledge in this space. Um, so, you know, I, the problem with the space right now is it's all over the place, right? Like there's no, there's right. no protocol. There's no, you know, there's, right. there's not a lot of, you don't have like randomized control studies. You're never going to do that if you if you're trying to right. get into longevity space because you'll die by the time it's over. But um, you put it. You kind of created a little bit of an infrastructure to explain this. Do you want to? Do you want to kind of dive into that a little bit? Sure, sure. So, you know, like you say, there is so much information out there. It's overwhelming. It's right. literally 
you could you can spend hours and in fact I have and probably continue to do so reading and, and tracking down stuff. But as I started to get out of my emergency medicine practice and get more into a wellness and preventative practice, I realized that what people need is number one, education and number two, direction. And I tried to distill that information. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some various trainings I went to. I came up with what I call um, the four pillars or maybe the five pillars actually of anti-aging medicine. And so one of the things I did when I put together that talk at the Wealth Formula Network conference was just true, try to distill it down into yeah. these are the five things to look at that as of now we have either good solid clinical evidence or at least directional evidence telling us this is the right approach. And of course, I'm always looking at this stuff, um, constantly reading the, the latest stuff that I can find, trying to understand how to do it better. But, you know, uh, I, I feel like I'm directionally accurate on these five pillars. Yeah. Um, so the five pillars, because I know that'll be your next question. Yeah. Uh, what are those five pillars? <laughs> are um, number one, chronobiology. Cro- would you call number it chronobiology? Chrono? Yeah. Okay. Chronobiology. So, um, yeah, if you want to dive into that a little bit, you know, what it boils down to is uh, you could, circadian rhythms. Okay. Humans are driven by the clock, right? And not uh-huh. the clocks necessarily, but by the natural rhythms of our planet, by the sun and the moon and the tidal cycles and things like that. But for most people, it's really daylight and darkness. Mm-hmm. And sleep, and sleep would be in there too, presumably. It is huge. And, yeah. you know, there's guys like Matthew Walker out there that are, you know, getting real popular in the sleep space, talking about what you can do to improve your sleep. And I've read a bunch of his stuff, looked through his stuff. But yeah, I mean, the bottom line is we all are biologically meant to be awake during a certain part of the day and asleep during a part, certain part of the day. And if you look at the literature in medicine, you realize that, for example, night shift workers have a much higher rate of the diseases that kill all of us eventually, yeah. right? Cardiovascular yeah. disease and, and such, cancer. Sure. And why is that? It's because we're messing with our circadian rhythms. So you know, the corollary to that is if you want to be healthy, you've got to pay attention to your circadian rhythms. Right. Um, the, the circadian rhythms we were all designed to have. Are those associated? I mean, it's getting a little technical, but um, I, I with with cortisone levels like in. Absolutely. Yeah. Cortisol. In fact, if you measure cortisol, cortisol is is a is one of the hormones that's very got what we call a diurnal rhythm. It's got a mm-hmm. rhythm of the day. In fact, one of the things, if you look, one of the things that we think helps wake you up in the morning is your cortisol starts to rise. So, you know, in a, in a quote, normal person who's sleeping normally and has a quote, normal schedule, whatever that means in this modern world, you know, right around 5am cortisol starts to rise, raises your blood pressure. There's a bunch of molecular confirmation changes that happen in the brain as your cortisol rises and in fact, one of the things I used to see in the ER is, you know, the, one of the most common times of day for a heart attack is that first few minutes. It's, it's early in the morning. Yeah. Highest right cortisol. Right at the end of our, yeah. of our shift, you know. Yeah, I mean, we're uh, talking about so, uh, cortisol leads uh, to not only, you know, this increase in MIs and all that, that in the morning that you talked about, but also uh, from a chronic perspective, you know, insulin resistance, more likelihood of, you know, becoming a diabetic and all those kinds yeah. of things. And it's all ultimately kind of related to something that in modern society, we've not really taken very seriously, which is sleep. Um, right. And it, it just to, it, I think that's like a very um, good place to uh, 
just focus on for this part. And one question I have for you is, you know, having read that literature, having read, you know, Matt Walker's books, um, what are just a couple of things that maybe you feel like people don't know that would be useful to know about sleep? So probably, I mean, you could go, I go on for a long time about the importance of sleep and different phases of sleep, but so many people complain of difficulty sleeping. And I think one of, as I mentioned from the circadian biology standpoint, one of the most important things you can do to protect your sleep is protect your eyes and by extension, your brain from blue light after sundown, or at least as you get ready to go to bed. And the reason for that is because light in the blue end of the spectrum produces or suppresses the production of a really important sleep hormone called melatonin. And melatonin is produced in the pineal gland and helps put you to sleep. So one of the simple, cheap tricks that you can use is to wear, for example, blue light blocking glasses as the sun goes down. And people, I tell a lot of people that a lot of patients notice that, boy, they start to get more and more sleepy at night. You know, now it's hard to stay up till 3 a.m. and watch Netflix if you're falling asleep yeah. with your white glasses. But guess what? You shouldn't be doing that anyway for your health. Hey, Rob, blue light, is that yeah. just screens or is that even just like, you know, ambient light from your light bulbs and that kind of thing? So sadly, buckets everywhere. I mean, screens is huge. In fact, you notice Apple has come up with night shift for their phones. There's a number of applications for your computer. One is called Flux that will temper the blue light. But most of us have gone to indoor lighting now that's um, produced by LEDs because they're cheap, they're energy efficient, they last forever as opposed to the old incandescent light bulbs. But the spectrum of LED lighting, the so-called white light coming from LEDs, usually has a huge spike in the blue range. And so, unfortunately, I think as we transition more to LEDs for our indoor lighting, we're finding we're going to find more and more trouble sleeping. Yeah, the incandescent so, yeah, uh, the incandescent light bulbs are those safe, so to speak, or, or you, they're going to have some level of blue light as well. They're they're safer. They're not entirely safe. And I have a tremendous graphic I could probably pull up and send to you or email to you yeah. that shows the different light spectrum from different bulbs. Yeah. But incandescents are, are very energy efficient, right? They get hot. A lot of the light comes off in the red and the yellow end of the spectrum and less in the blue. Right. Um, LED and then halogens are, you know, different. Um, they have a different spectrum, but LEDs typically come out with a lot of energy in the blue. They don't get hot. That's another great thing about them. You'll never start your house on fire with yeah. an LED bulb. But the sad thing is you've got a lot of blue light exposure there. Let's move on to the next pillar. Yeah, you bet. Next pillar, diet, nutrition, and supplements. So I put all these together because, you know, everybody knows that what you eat is, you know, really important for your health. And um, if you look at historically what the rates of chronic disease and obesity and things like that in the U.S. are, you'll find that prior to 1980, they were a lot lower than they are now. And that's despite a deluge of information about, um, you know, what you should eat, low fat, low cholesterol, low carb, gluten-free. And it's a very confusing space. And I'm always looking for a better way to recommend what people eat to enhance longevity. And the other thing that's important about diet is what you don't eat or when you eat. In fact, almost weekly now, you'll see in major news sources, things published on intermittent fasting, you know, our bodies were not designed to be fed small amounts of high 
calorie density, low nutrient density foods 24 seven. And so going through the drive through at, you know, your local fast food restaurant at 2am is terrible for your health. Sadly, it's time your body's not meant to eat and particularly the kind of stuff you get there. So pillar two is really focused around what you eat and when you eat. So it's interesting to me about this topic is that, you know, in medicine, um, we, you know, we, we've been giving people, not you and me, but medical world has been giving people a very different story for, for years and years. And they, yeah. you know, the, the food pyramid and, uh, there was obviously <laughs> some, uh, you know, some reports about how that food pyramid was really affected by, um, you know, the sugar industry and, and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I've seen but, um, you know, it's funny cause I remember being in, I think it was like third or fourth grade and the, uh, the teacher, my teacher said we were doing this thing on food pyramid and he's like can anybody think of the you know the perfect food and uh based on this and and he said well it's pizza of course pizza's got everything here and that oh yeah i think i had the same uh the same thought (laughs) right but um so mostly (laughs) plant-based so i think the thing to focus on there right is and tell me if you agree with this but i think the biggest difference in terms of you know what we used to say and what we know I think is true right now is that sugar is bad. I mean, sugar is kind of the devil. Correct. Correct. And many of the foods that have been regarded as quote healthy unquote for many years basically break down to sugar. So it comes down to carbohydrate consumption and whether it's simple sugars like sugar, like sucrose, you know, table sugar, or really complicated but relatively simple sugars like high fructose corn syrup, which I can't imagine who would argue that's good for you at this yeah. point. There's so much data. Or even just these really complicated carbohydrate sugars like uh, bagels, you yeah. know, for example. I mean, um, and, and they're extremely high in caloric density, but they have almost none of the nutrients that your body really needs. And so overconsumption of those is very bad. So the, you know, it's funny, even, even a few years ago, like I'm talking about maybe three, four years ago, I was talking to uh, my physician at the time who since retired and he was a good guy, but, and I, you know, wasn't really into all this stuff. Uh, and I brought up this concept of uh, intermittent fasting or, or yeah. you know the, the the intermittent feeding or whatever you want to call it, um, you know time restricted feeding, and he said, "Well, yeah, you can do it if you want, but you know it's really at the end of the day, it's calories in, calories out." Ends up that that's probably not true. Is that is that right? I, yeah, I agree. I mean, the data again. There's so much good stuff both in the medical literature, if you look, and now in the lay literature about fasting and time restricted feeding. I mean. When you're fasting, your body is undergoing a process called autophagy. Autophagy is basically recycling. Your body says there's no new energy coming in. I got to figure out what to do with the garbage in the system and recycle as much of that as I can for energy. And so if you never fast, you never undergo autophagy. Your mitochondria, those little batteries in your cells, those little power plants in your cells, you know, think of fasting as culling the herd of bad mitochondria, right? So when your bad mitochondria aren't when there's not enough energy to feed everything in the body. Um, the bad, the body breaks down the bad mitochondria and recycles the components to make new and good mitochondria. The problem is if you never fast, if you're never without food for a period of time, 
you will find that those little bad mitochondria just kind of hang around and they just, they never, um, they, you know, the herd gets weaker by the weaker parts of it. The concept um, is sort of, it's almost Darwinian, right? Like, I mean, if you think about um, this concept of what, what we call hormesis comes up a lot, which is, you know, challenging the body to a certain degree, yeah. uh, but not too much where you get, you know, you, you get killed by it. So being hungry sometimes is a good thing because your body needs, needs to be hungry in order to process some of these things. And For sure. that's the concept. So intermittent fasting versus uh, time-restricted feeding. I mean, really, is there, and, and I don't hate to put you on the spot because you're just talking to me, but is there any difference in terms of the effectiveness? Because when you talk about intermittent fasting, it's sometimes it's like people fasting for like a day, full day or like two days of the week uh, versus uh, restricted time feeding, which is more what I do, which is like I basically eat between, you know, one and, you know, eight and no right. calories other than that. You know, I think, so that's a good question. The, the, the challenge with fasting is we know there's great things that it does for the body. We don't know what the right dose is. It's, it's Think of it as a drug. It's a very, very powerful drug. It does all kinds of amazing things for the body. We don't know the right dose or the right strength to give you. Um, so, you know, there are clinics where you can go buck and you can pay them to, you know, give you a pitcher of water every day and monitor your vital signs. Yeah. <laughs> and after three weeks, you know, your high blood pressure might be all better, for yeah. example, yeah. Uh, not specifically, but as, as a patient, but the, so there's a spectrum from what you're describing, time restricted feeding, say eating for a six to eight hour window a day um, to, you know, maybe fasting for 24 to 36 hours once or twice a week to, you know, some people recommend a, um, you know, five or seven day fast quarterly. There's a really interesting product developed by a longevity scientist named Walter Longo at UCLA called Prolon. It's a what they call a fasting mimicking diet. And he claims to have created the same effects of fasting while eating small amounts of certain macronutrient foods. And I've used that with some patients who've had tremendous success. Although that, that diet it, itself is, <laughs> it's, you might as well be fasting, right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> awful. But, you know, and, and some people it works better for than others. But yeah. the cool thing is he's got data on this stuff yeah. showing people do better with cancer. Um, they tolerate chemotherapy better. Um, after three months of doing this for five days a month, so 15 days total in three months, um, not, it's, it's not really aimed at weight loss, although people generally lose a little bit of weight, but their, their C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker, goes down. Mm-hmm. Their um, lipid profile tends to normalize. I mean, just five days once a month of this time restri- or this, this calorie-restricted diet, they call the fasting mimicking diet, does really amazing things for people okay, metabolically. Okay, th- so this, this is not something you have to keep doing like every day for good. It's, it's like five days per month. That's the fasting mimicking diet. That's interesting. Know. Okay. But, but I think the idea of time restricted feeding daily makes a lot of sense because if you look at the, and this is where it's so hard to get data because their studies are all over. But if you look at the alternative, which is you eat constantly all day long, we know that's bad for you. That's what's right. leading us to so many problems. So if you can, can restrict your feeding to four to six hours a day, then your body's essentially fasting or, you know, for the other say 20 or 16 to 20 hours, whatever it ends up being. That's a, uh, we think that's a good thing. It Again, seems to be the complicate the complicating factor, not complicating, but the, the confusing thing about this to a lot of people is again, this is really kind of different from what 
I grew up believing to be right. healthy, right? Like if you like take eat right. several times a day, small amounts, and that's how you keep you know your weight down and all that. But it's 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 the opposite. So it's like, man, I hope this doesn't change again. You know what I mean? Well, but is that in you're you're right, but but also think of how things have changed since yeah. you grew up. I don't know when I grew up. You know when we we generally had three meals a day. Yeah, and there wasn't all this snacking built into every day. I mean, now when you take your kids to soccer, you know, the parents draw lots to see who's bringing the, the, the snack for the soccer game, you know, like and at school they have quote nutrition breaks, you know, halfway between breakfast and lunch. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of things have changed since the seventies and the eighties, you know, people eat more frequently. There's a much higher availability of really bad quality food. Um, we also live in a very different environment. Our environment is, you know, you also weren't staying up till 2 a.m. on Instagram. Um, yeah. I'm, I hope you're not now. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that that stuff all plays in. You know, if you talk about circadian biology and then you talk about eating all this stuff all day long, then you start to wonder why now, like, 30% of kids are now obese. In fact, I think just the other day the American Academy of Pediatrics says that something like 30% of kids are obese and they're starting to recommend bariatric surgery at age 13. Yeah. And, and uh, GLP-1 inhibitor, uh, yeah. this is crazy. crazy. The world's changed a lot in the last 50 years. Yeah. Um, okay. So That's let's talk, let's, let's go to the next pillar. Sure. Uh, exercise. So, you know, like fasting exercise, you almost need to consider a drug to the point where it almost is a necessity. A prescription should be given. It's, and then people say, well, what and how much? And, you know, there's a huge range of what exercise is from, you know, walking your 10,000 steps a day to running a marathon. Is and, there um, any data uh, that certain kinds, I know we, we, we often hear these days about high intensity type workouts and that kind of thing that might be better than others? Well, one thing is very clear um, from the data is number one, the higher your VO2 max, which is your aerobic capacity, your ability to do kind of aerobic exercise. And that's a test that, you know, they hook you up with a, with a mask on your face and measure your oxygen in, inspired and your carbon dioxide output. One thing that's clear is the higher your VO2 max, the better your ultimate longevity will be. So we think based on that, that some level of cardiovascular exercise, aerobic exercise that helps to maintain and increase your VO2 max is very valuable and, and, and required. Now, whether that's uh, high intensity interval training, and that seems to be all the rage right now. And I think the, the reason for that is it's efficient, right? Everybody's pressed for time. If you can go in the gym and get a good workout in 20 minutes of intervals, that, that fits most people's schedules. But, you know, you also find that people who are out doing stuff at a lower intensity all day long, like walking or doing physical jobs, can also develop good aerobic fitness. But, but pushing, your, pushing into high intensity is good periodically for sure because you do want to keep that VO2 max up. The other thing that's really clear is resistance exercise or, or some kind of weight training is absolutely critical as people age. Um, good muscle mass helps with keeping your metabolism where it needs to be. It also is really important for mobility as people get older. Like it, it's fine to be 90, but if you can't stand up and you're in a wheelchair and you fall over and you break your hip the first time you try to transfer from the chair to a bed, then what does it matter? Right. So you want to be able to get up and walk and, and go upstairs and things. So 
resistance training is so critical as people age for longevity. And that's a good point you bring up too, just to, to um, circle back to that a little bit, which is, you know, people, if you, if you go in a room and you ask a bunch of people if they want to live to be 110, uh, actually not as many people would raise your hand as you'd think. And I think it's because people are imagining what you would be like at 110. Um, And that's not what we're after. When we're talking about longevity, we're talking about this concept, this potential that um, through behavior, through exercise, and ultimately pharmaceuticals, that we may be able to say, you know, 100 years old is the new 70 or something like that and live like a 70 year old for a period of time. Right. Right. Well, what we really want to do, and this is where it's, this is kind of where I fall with most of our patients is we can't prove that anything we do increases your lifespan yet. And maybe we never will. Like you say, the controlled studies are not there and it's going to be really hard to do that. Humans are too complicated, but what we're trying to do is increase what we call your health span, right? I want you to live the most vital life doing the things you want to do whatever those are, as long as you can, and then die quietly in your sleep, you know, or at least not have a prolonged period of disability because of aging, right? So so you're right. Nobody wants to live to 110 probably if they're told, well, you're going to be in a nursing home bed with decubitus ulcers and a feeding tube. But if I could be 110 and, you know, taking a walk every day and going to dinner with some loved ones, then you sign me up yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. It's health span that most everybody's looking for right. more so I think, than lifespan. Um, what's the, okay. So let's, let's move on to the next pillar. Sure. Uh, next pillar um, is this is where we start to get out of the lifestyle sort of interventions, you know, the chronobiology, diet, exercise, and into something where I think a medical doctor or some kind of a practitioner can be helpful. And it's hormone replacement therapy. So, you know, men and women both are programmed, if you will, to lose our hormones as we age. So women go through a period of time called menopause, which, you know, is they refer to as the change of life. And if you talk to a lot of women about it who've been through menopause, they'll tell you it's like falling off a hormonal cliff. You know, everything changes almost overnight. You know, usually it's in a, within a six month to a year period of time. Uh, and that's when women lose the important, what we call sex steroid hormones, things like testosterone, progesterone, and estradiol. And once that happens, their risk of heart disease goes way up. Their risk of osteoporosis goes way up. You know, that's when women really start to age quickly. Now, men have a different thing. We go through what we now call andropause, which is a, a generally a very slow decline over time. And there are a lot of hormones involved, but the key one in men is testosterone. And as a man's testosterone starts to decline, all kinds of things start to happen. And, you know, things like loss of energy and sleep and inability to gain muscle and, you know, worsening body composition and uh, mood instability and inability to concentrate and focus and decrease libido and all kinds of things that never are things you want to have happen. But the challenge in men is they happen so slowly over time, sort of starting in our 40s and, you know, continuing for the rest of your life that we're just told by our doctors, hey, you're just getting older, you know, just live with it. That's what happens when you get older. Turns out that we can very safely replace hormones in both men and women um, in a medical monitored fashion. 
and restore a lot of that vitality. And by extension, most of the studies show and, and what seems to be happening is we can put off some of those chronic diseases, the things like osteoporosis and yeah. things like that. Now I'm curious. So, so one thing I would, I, I want to just kind of drill down on a little bit is this idea of hormone replacement therapy in women. Yep. Again, this was something I remember, gosh, I remember in high school and in maybe it was a college or something. It was college. And I hear about people trying to decide whether or not like parents, whether or not they were going to have that kind of treatment or not. It was really not clear. Like doctors, a lot of doctors were telling women not to do this. And it seems to me like this is probably one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. I, I think that's very true. So uh, the, the backstory that I can give you pretty quickly is that there was a big study back in the early 2000s called the Women's Health Initiative. And they looked at hormone replacement in women. And essentially, the hormones that they used were drugs, not what we call bioidentical hormones. So uh, not to sound, again, too conspiratorial, but um, there's not any money in marketing testosterone, estradiol, and progesterone. Those are biologically available compounds and there's no patents you can't patent them but what you can do is you can take for example estradiol and tweak it chemically and now it's a drug and you can patent it and instead of being 10 cents a dose it's two dollars or ten dollars or a hundred dollars a dose and then you can market it and so this women's health initiative study used these synthetic hormones to investigate whether or not the symptoms of menopause could be improved in women and they found in fact that they decreased their risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke and some other things. And they got better. Some of those perimenopausal symptoms like night flat or night sweats and hot flashes got better. Unfortunately, they also found that a lot of those women got breast cancer. And so what happened is the newspapers published big headlines, you know, hormones cause cancer in women. And so a whole generation of doctors and women said, well, I'm not prescribing those things. Yeah. But, you know, if you drill down and look at the bioidentical hormones, in other words, the the, the same compound that the body makes and expects to see and the, the ones that we give and most of the people that are doing hormone replacement now give, there's no data showing increased risk of cancer. And there's a ton of data showing good things happen. And more important to me than the data is the experience. I mean, I have patients coming in literally every week or two saying, you've totally changed my life. You know, thank you. And I'm telling my sister and my friend and my daughter and my you know, when coworkers about it on the man's side of that, is there, and, and you know, obviously this is not this is well studied, but is there any evidence that testosterone replacement actually helps with some of the chronic disease issues like, you know, cardiovascular disease? Oh yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot of, um, there are lots and lots of studies on this. And, you know, of course, like any study, you can find a, a, a counter study, right. That says the opposite. Um, so, but, but men with low testosterone are much more likely to die sooner of cardiovascular disease. They're much more likely to get osteoporosis, uh, you know, much more likely to suffer from mood disorders and depression and things like that. Obviously, um, libido and sexual function are issues. Um, the, uh, diabetes is way more likely in men with low testosterone. And in fact, almost every diabetic you'll ever meet has low testosterone and maybe as a corollary to the disease, not as the cause, oh, but wow. um, dyslipidemia or, or, you know, the, the type of cholesterol findings we don't want on our blood panel 
is way more common with testosterone. And in fact, testosterone helps treat all of those things. The big thing that men worry about with testosterone is prostate cancer. And that's based on some very sketchy anecdotal stuff from a hundred years ago, where we discovered that men with really bad prostate cancer, um, we could put it into remission by castrating them, <laughs> which yeah. doesn't sound like much fun. Yeah. But, you know, since then that's been looked at extensively and it's actually been discovered that, uh, first of all, testosterone doesn't cause prostate cancer. Men who have very low testosterone have a higher likelihood of high grade prostate cancer when they have prostate cancer. And the current consensus that most urologists agree with is if you have low testosterone, get it treated. If you have prostate cancer, get it treated. But, you know, testosterone doesn't cause it or make it worse. There are some very advanced cases where we will, you know, essentially uh, destroy a man's testosterone production with drugs like Lupron. Those men are miserable. Most of them, if they don't die within a couple of years from their cancer, would like to die anyway because they're so miserable because their testosterone is so low. So I'm, I think it's very safe. And, it's, and, you know, Buck, the thing that's surprising, and we're seeing this every day in my practice, is young men. You know, it used to be testosterone replacement. Uh, you know, we, when I started doing this, I mean, I haven't been doing this for that long, but you know, 10, 15 years, 12 years, 10 years, I guess now, you know, it was 45, 50 year old guys. Now we're seeing 30, 35 year old guys coming in. Now is that cause we're cat? I mean, do you think that that's a change in, uh, in, in demographics of who's got this, or do you think this is just about self-reporting? Um, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think demographic, and I think it's awareness, right? But I do think there are more, I mean, gosh, there was just a, a something published not long ago about sperm counts going down in men and all the multifactorial stuff that's leading to that, you know, plastics in the environment and BPA in your water bottle. And all. So I think, I think we're seeing more and more men who are probably having lower testosterone at a younger age and also they're more aware because there's more information out there on the internet. I mean, I just had my assistant call me yesterday and say, hey, I got a 27-year-old here who has low testosterone. Can we treat him? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, that's, it used to be that was a rare thing, and that was something you'd send to an endocrinologist. And we probably will still send him to an endocrinologist because there's, there are other things that need to be worked up in someone that age. But I'm not surprised anymore to see a 35-year-old come in with testosterone of a total testosterone of 300, whereas it should be, you know, 800 or 900. What do you what do you treat at? I'm curious. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of guys who are aware of what their testosterone levels are. Generally, um, I, I think that the medical establishment still has a pretty pretty high threshold for for actually doing hormone replacement. Um, right. yeah. the, you know, I think it's what below 300 or something like that. Right. Isn't what, the, what they typically have been, uh, have been taught. Um, yep. but what is, what's, what's your threshold and why? Well, so we don't look at the range itself. So the range, for example, at the lab we use is 250 to 1100. Um, and I think it's nanograms per deciliter. Um, and so most doctors will look at that and say, well, yours is 261. It's higher than 250. Don't worry about it. Because like you say, the medical establishment has long said, hey, you know, as long as you're in the normal range, you're in the normal range. Well, those of us in the anti-aging medicine field believe there's an optimal range. And I, it's not just a belief. There's a lot of, you know, studies showing that men do best in what we would call the top quartile of that range. So most men feel best. 
their risk of disease, you know, those both immediate and chronic diseases is lower when their testosterone is in the top quartile. So that's somewhere between, say, 900 and 1100. No kidding. That high, 900 plus. Oh, yeah. And, And then the other thing that we do, which is different than a lot of practices, is we measure actually the free or the bioavailable testosterone because total testosterone can be, say, 800, but if most of a man's testosterone is bound to something called sex hormone binding globulin, which is a common protein found in everybody's blood and goes up as we age and goes up with exposure to various toxins and estrogenic substances and this, that, and the other, um, your total testosterone might look fine. It might look like it's 800, and your doctor might say, hey, that's great, but if your bioavailable or your free testosterone is in the bottom part of that range, if I can bring you back to the top of that range you'll feel better. And again, I have people, patients, men coming in very frequently saying, Hey, you know, now I finally feel like I did five years ago. And now I have that motivation to go to the gym and work out or the energy, or now when I get home from work, I don't just crash on the couch and, you know, go to bed at eight o'clock or whatever. So yeah. Is there going to be optimal? With testosterone, I've heard some people worried like younger men who, who have it of, of infertility, yeah. Uh, and is that is that permanent infertility or just while they're on testosterone? Um, it is typically while they're on testosterone. So when we give a man exogenous testosterone, uh, essentially the brain shuts down the production of testosterone and by extension also can, it doesn't always decrease a man's sperm count. And so um, we warn, you know, we, we, tend not to like treating younger patients for that reason, but then there are alternatives that can help maintain their fertility. But typically when a man goes off testosterone, their body doesn't forget how to make it. It doesn't forget they need it. It just takes about two to three months to return them back to kind of close to where they were. Got it. So I have patients say, do I need to be on this for life? And I say, no, as long as you want, you can be on it. You can get off at any time. You'll just go back to feeling how you did. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Fertility is an issue in, in younger men and, there are, there are other medications and hormones that we use to, to uh, you know, mitigate that problem when it's an issue. And, but I also tell men, guess what? Testosterone is not birth control. Just because I'm giving you testosterone yeah. doesn't mean you're not yeah, that's, father that's a good child. Point. So yeah, good make sure point. you take adequate precautions if that's not your goal. That's right. Uh, there's one more pillar, right? One more pillar is, and this is, this is kind of the new one. This is the drugs pillar. Yeah. This is where we start to get into the the real potential medical interventions for um, so-called anti-aging. And, you know, this is a tough one um, because most of these drugs are repurposed drugs for other diseases. You know, interestingly, if you go talk to the FDA, they don't regard aging as a disease. You know, Uh, there's all these diseases that sort of come with aging, but nobody has sort of, or, or I won't say nobody, but overall nobody's come up with a drug that treats the so-called disease of aging. But the, the most prominent drugs in that space that are being studied currently and I think are really worth considering depending on where you are in your lifespan and health span um, are one called metformin. Now, people who are familiar with medications may say, well, that's a drug for diabetes. But it's interesting. Diabetics have been taking metformin for many years. It's a very inexpensive drug. I mean, you can get a month's supply for 3 or $4. It's crazy cheap. Um, and yet, there is some pretty compelling data that shows that diabetics who are on metformin actually die less frequently of some of the diseases of aging 
than non-diabetics. And diabetes, and, and yet diabetes is a known risk factor. So let's just take cardiovascular disease. If you put a, a big group, and this has been shown, a big group of diabetics on metformin versus an age-matched population of controls, we know diabetes leads to cardiovascular disease. And if you're not treating those diabetics with metformin, they die off a lot faster from cardiovascular disease. But if they're on metformin, they live longer than the people who aren't on metformin who don't have diabetes. And so that's led to looking more carefully at what metformin does. And it turns out it has a bunch of different mechanisms. And it looks like it, it does have some compelling data suggesting it, it potentially can extend life in sort of earthworms and, you know, rats and things like that. Yeah. Again, it's hard to get on humans. But it, it, it makes a pretty compelling case for metformin being an anti-aging drug. Now, here's the problem. It's cheap. It's off patent for the last 25 years. So very few drug companies are going to want to put, you know, the half a billion dollars into studying it for that new, quote, indication. But there are studies going on on metformin for anti-aging. Another one uh, I think you're probably going to get to is rapamycin. Yep. Rapamycin is another interesting drug. And this is probably the one that is in some ways the most compelling. It's a, um, it's used currently as an immunosuppressive drug. So people who have organ transplants, the interesting thing is if you look at rapamycin, it works directly on a really important uh, protein in the cells called mTOR. In fact, it's, it's pretty funny. They used rapamycin in the lab to discover how your body's cells actually, how the metabolism works. So there is a protein in every cell, in every biological being from an earthworm to a human being now um, that has a protein in it called mTOR. And that, that stands for mitochondrial target of rapamycin. So rapamycin works at this extremely um, targeted cellular level on um, biological cells. And what it does is it inhibits this mTOR protein. And what that does is that basically that protein controls um, energy balance in the body and it controls about 50 different pathways that tell the body or the cell how to use energy and how much energy is coming in and how much should be expended. And interestingly, again, it's shown that to increase longevity in mice, rats, dogs, earthworms, uh, a variety of primates, monkeys, right, um, apes, we just don't have good longevity data in human beings. Now, again, it's used for immunosuppression in organ transplant patients. It's off patent, so it's relatively inexpensive. You know, you can get off patent versions. And there's some pretty compelling data on human beings, or at least anecdotal data. There's there's not any good long-term studies, but I think rapamycin, and, and the other thing is it's very well tolerated, doesn't have a lot of side effects. People say, well, what about immunosuppression? I mean, that's what it's used for. Well, we, we can prescribe it in different dosage protocols for anti-aging than we can, than we do for immunosuppression for, say, kidney transplants. And um, yeah, I mean, this, it's not sort of widely accepted yet as an anti-aging drug, but there are some doctors that think it is the anti-aging drug of the yeah. future. And I mean, that, so, that um, is I the definitely. the one potentially that may have the most actual research behind it, at least in, you know, maybe yeah. not human, but uh, other mammalian uh, or, you know, lesser uh, animal models. Um, yeah. but Pretty well studied. Yeah. And More to, to study. Yeah. To your point, always. though, about, you know, rapamycin again this is this is a cheap drug and it's remarkable how little you hear about it 
from, you know, in the longevity ecosystem compared to something like NMN or, you know, uh, NMR. Right. Um, do you want right. to talk a little bit about those and if you think that there's real validity to, you know, or re- reason to consider taking those things? Sure. So the things you've mentioned, NMN and NMR, is uh, nicotinoside, let me see, nicotinamide mononuclear riboside or so. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you're a bi- bigger, bigger man than me trying to remember what that yeah, stands for. These are variants of yeah. um uh, niacin basically, which is a B vitamin. And so the, the reason we think those drugs have some value is there was a paper by a longevity scientist at, I believe Harvard named David Sinclair, who realized that as organisms age, the, the, the intracellular component of something called NAD decreases. Uh, NAD is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide is one of the components that is used in the Krebs cycle. Um, which is the energy production part of a cell. Anyway, so the theory is if, if, if we know aging is related to decreasing NAD, if we can get extra NAD into the cell, it will helpfully re- reverse aging. And so, again, there's studies in, in earthworms, and, and, and they use earthworms a lot because they have a quick life cycle and you can you know, control all the variables, but and mice and things showing using these NMN and NMR products can, when they can get into the cells, they might raise the, the NAD levels enough to uh, potentially prevent aging. Um, the reason you hear more about those, I think, in the anti-aging space is because they're supplements right now, right? And so most of the time when you go online and you, you, you look around for supplements, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that will make money selling those supplements to you. And so you can buy these supplements. There's a number of companies that make them, and some of them have some pretty compelling data. One of them is, you know, founded by Dr. Sinclair. And, you know, I think if I were um, inclined, I'd be going that direction, for example. And I do take one of those supplements because they're safe, they're relatively cheap, they're non-toxic. But we don't have as good a data on them yet. Uh, I think we will eventually have more data. You know, you hear more about those, I think, than you hear about things like uh, metformin and rapamycin because those are drugs that have to be prescribed by a physician in the U.S. anyway. And a lot of doctors don't kind of look at this space because it's it's not their thing, right? I mean, they're too busy doing surgery or prescribing blood pressure medications and... But I think we're going to see more and more on this as time goes on as people are more interested in a longer health span. Um. I don't know if you have any other major uh, medications, but one thing I do want to touch on, because I think this is, you know, just way underutilized, is uh, the thing that is known as a PSK9 inhibitor. Do you want to explain what that is? Sure. Um, yeah, you're going to make me remember what PCSK9 is. So PSK9, a, but PSK9 inhibitor, basically, you don't, you don't have to use the long word. I can explain this, drug. I'm just trying to think of the name of the enzyme. It's a monoclonal um, antibody. So yeah. One of the drugs, the, the prototype drug is, is called Repatha. And this is in some ways also a miraculous drug. This is a genetically engineered product. Um, so it's one of those drugs that came about with the advent of genetic engineering. Uh, and it's an it's an antibody to this um, protein in the liver that um, processes cholesterol, and it lowers people's LDL cholesterol uh, by a huge amount with almost no side effects. And they've been around for about seven or eight years, so we've got pretty good data on safety. 
But the theory here is that it is almost possible at this point to certainly prevent and maybe to an extent reverse Mm -hmm. atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease using these PCSK9 inhibitor drugs. And, you know, up till now, the, the best way to do this has been the statins and Statin drugs, although I'm sure, you know, there's, there's good data for various things on them and they've saved a lot of lives come with a lot of, they're dirty drugs. They come with a lot of downsides. There's a lot of people who have side effects from statins. There are, uh, you know, a lot of issues with statins, whereas PCSK9 inhibitors are extremely clean. They target this one protein in the liver. They can drop someone's LDL from say 130 to 30 in a couple months and uh, you know there's actually some studies showing reversal of coronary plaques yes. which is pretty amazing i mean yeah if you and, the and there's a number there. there's a threshold typically what is that is that below like below 50 or below 40? what what is that number where i'm trying to remember if you do you remember what what the number uh ldl number is that uh if you get below that there there, there seems to be some reversal you know, I'm not sure. I I don't do primarily cardiovascular yeah, stuff. Yeah, no, that's so fine. Not, and, of course, and I, and I didn't expect you to know it, but um, um, the concept, but, though, and and I and the reason one of the reasons I ask about this is because I I am on a PSK nine inhibitor, and she might ask, "Well, gosh, well, what, why are you on a PSK nine inhibitor? Do you have hypercholesteremia?" The answer is no. I never never really did have high cholesterol. I was. Um, I'm a history of heart disease uh, on my mom's side, and I got paranoid in my 40s, and somebody put me on a statin. And the statin, um, I didn't feel great with the statin, and so I just kind of got off of it over time. Then I did a yep, big... very common story. Yeah, cardi- a cardiac study. I did I did a great big, you know, uh, thing just again, you know, for because I'm, you know, getting older and uh, just the same reason you went into longevity medicine and just... Uh, and the cardiologist introduced me this this whole uh, PSK9 inhibitor. And the idea, again, being, okay, you don't have disease, um, and but we can artificially, in your case, suppress your LDL to such a degree that presumably you may never have to worry about car- dying of cardiovascular disease. And that, to me, is astounding, given the fact that cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in the United States. But yep. but I am absolutely floored by the number of people that I know uh, who have high cholesterol. Not even like mine is pretty normal. High cholesterol yeah. and their primaries are like, ah, it's fine. It's not that bad. You know, diet, yeah. exercise. And, right. and, and completely ignore this. Peter Atia, actually, who I think is brilliant. Uh, he's a... Uh, He's a podcaster. He's a physician um, on the Drive. I think his podcast is called. He yep. he estimated, and I don't know how he got this, but that cardiovascular disease would go from you know the first leading cause of death to probably under ten if people routinely began using PSK nine inhibitors, which is just again crazy to me. Yeah, no, I mean I've heard it theorized that we could essentially eliminate cardiovascular disease. I think. They're great drugs. I mean, they, they seem to have very few side effects. Most of the people that take them do really well. The big problem right now, to the extent there expensive. is, is they're very expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, you're looking at 500 
to $600 a month. And most of the insurance companies will not even allow you to get them unless you've proven that you failed a statin and you've got documented coronary disease or this, that, or the other. And so I think part of the issue is just going to be awareness. Uh, and I think as we see more evidence that perhaps we turn around some disease that maybe the indications will widen. Um, well, you would yeah, think the, the insurance companies at some point might feel like it's more cost effective to prevent the disease. <laughs> than pay for a bypass surgery. Yeah, pay for bypass surgery, <laughs> or, right? Or a stent or right, whatever. Right. I know. I mean, that's, and you know, Buck, another potential anti-aging drug, I just heard it proposed the other day on another podcast by another physician I know, um, is the new, um, is the GLP-1 agonist drugs, the semaglutide and things like that as a potential anti-aging drug. Is that another diabetes drug? Yeah, they're diabetes drugs and they're all the rage right now for weight, weight loss, loss in Hollywood and places like this because, you know, there was a study showing you could lose 20% of your body weight. I think it was over 70, uh, 72 weeks using semaglutide. And it, it alters appetite and glucose metabolism. And again, it's this question, you know, you, if you look at obesity as a potential cause of heart disease and all these other things, you'd think the insurance companies would be wanting you to get on this stuff so they could prevent further disease. And I'm sure at some level, the actuaries will figure that out, that, right? If we pay for this 500 or 800 or or $1,000 drug now, yeah. we can save ourselves 100000 in hospital costs down the line. This one has some bad side effects too, though, doesn't it? They do. They're not super clean. I mean, people oftentimes get, you know, nausea and vomiting and reflux and, and such. Um, basically slows down your, you know, slows down your gut. Slows your gut down. You you feel full all the time. You don't want to eat. You feel (laughs) a little, you know, but, but again, for people that have been struggling for weeks and years and have no other way to lose weight, it, it, it helps. It seems to help. And, and they start, you know, you start at a low dose and you titrate people up. they, they seem to be working. Um, yeah, I don't know that I'd want to be on that forever. And there was also a black box warning on those for thyroid cancer. So that's sort of oh, nice. only been around for yeah. a few years. So we don't we don't know. There's no reported cases in people yet, but we're waiting to see. Right. Um, but they work. You know, on the other hand, you have people that say it's changed our lives. So yeah, yeah. The, there's some really neat stuff in this field in this um, place. And again, what you see what we're doing now for this longevity, we're taking all drugs used for a specific purpose, like these PCSK9 inhibitors. And we're saying, wow, maybe that's going to help extend lifespan if we can prevent some of the diseases of aging, right? right. You know, uh, and, uh, Rob, treat them. I want to, uh, yeah. if people want to come out and see you, t- tell us about where your office is and stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, we're in, um, far Northern California, a place called Redding, little town up, uh, at the, near Lake Shasta. Our, the practice is called Prestige Regenerative Medicine. Uh, because of the type of economy in the area, we mostly focus on hormone replacement and um, some sexual wellness services and also some regenerative orthopedics. So things like um, PRP injections into joints and things like that. But, you know, we do do some of the you know, when, when we get somebody who really wants to dive into the anti-aging type stuff, we certainly can support that. I've got a couple um, owners, practitioner, PA working with me, and we we try our best to help people live the best life they can now and hopefully the, the longest, best health span they can have. Fantastic. Rob, it's always a pleasure. Um, I'm always uh, texting you or emailing you my own questions, so I appreciate uh, 
your time today. And people, people just love, you know, love what you have to say. So thanks. Thanks for that. My pleasure, Buck. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll have, let, let's talk again soon. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed that conversation. This stuff is super exciting for me. And I've even like contemplated doing maybe another podcast or maybe changing the format of this one a little bit or something like that so that I could do more things like that are going to be of general interest to, you know, people like you and me, uh, but don't necessarily always have to be talking about money. This particular field, I think, is incredibly important for people to sort of start paying attention to because I think there are things that you can do today if you're in your, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, uh, that can seriously potentially alter, uh, you know, the way 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, et cetera, can look for you in the future. And so hopefully we can continue giving you more of this kind of stuff. Um, I think uh, I certainly... Uh, I certainly am going to be following closely myself and uh, even at our last meeting gave you a pretty good idea of what actually I have actually done myself and what I do myself. So uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and, you know, shoot me an email and let me know what your thoughts are at buck at wealthformula.com. With that, this is Buck Joffrey signing out. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.